Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome to the Naked Professor's podcast. My name is Ben Bidwell, otherwise known as the Naked Professor, and I'm here to bring real conversation about things that matter. In the last few months, we've done that across roundtable conversations. I've been sharing different perspectives from different people and really tried to fill into the emotion of what they've experienced. But this month, with it being May, the month of mental health, I wanted to bring some experts to really dive deeper into subjects that really matter, things that impact our mental health. And today, there's no bigger subject than anxiety for me. It's a huge one. I think it's something that so many of us can connect with, particularly with the last year. We've had so much uncertainty, which is a huge instigator of anxiety. And I wanted to bring an expert who could come and really dive into this subject more deeply with me. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Russell Kennedy, who's author of Anxiety Rx, which is a new principle for bringing about anxiety relief. Um, I haven't yet read the book, but it's <laughs> next on my list because having had this conversation with with Russell, it just, so much of it made sense and it just pieced together this narrative of understanding of anxiety that I hadn't done before. And that centers around understanding our past experiences and understanding our past traumas and triggers that create thoughts that unconsciously just arrive at the surface and we don't we, we don't know how to manage them we don't know how to, to not only manage them but we don't know how to have compassion for them and to have compassion for ourselves and I learned from Russell and sitting in this space so clearly that that's such a big part of this it's such a big part it's something I hadn't considered really in the past so I'm so so thrilled to bring this conversation alive Russell brings so much knowledge and intellect he's got degrees in advanced training in medicine neuroscience and development psychology but he brings about so much personal experience as well and it's just a real holistic feel to his information so yeah I'll leave it to him to, to explain further I'll pass the baton to Russell I really hope you enjoy this conversation for me it was incredible so um if anxiety shows up in your life at all please give us a listen Russell, it's um, my real, my honour, my pleasure to sit here and um, share this space with you, really. Um, May has become such a month for mental health awareness and anxiety has become such a huge, I don't know, I feel like it's come alive in in the last few years. Suddenly everyone is talking anxiety, I hear it everywhere and certainly from my own journey, the last 10 years I've become a whole lot more aware of anxiety it wasn't something that was in my life and to have an expert to have someone an author to have someone like you whose story I've heard a few times now um, is a real privilege and honor and I'm really grateful to have you in the space and to be able to share your learnings and your education and your story too so thank you for being here yeah thanks I, I love just getting this message out just because it's so counterintuitive to what most people think anxiety is and the the way most people treat it mm. well let's let's dive into that then because yeah what i mean how, how do you think most people most people see it and what's your perspective on it well i think most people see it as a process of the mind 
most people see anxiety as this overthinking, you know, projections of the future. And, and it is, it is, but that's, that's kind of the effect of it. The cause of it, I find, at least with chronic anxiety, maybe not, you know, if your goldfish dies and you have a day where you're upset, you know, maybe not that kind of anxiety, but the chronic anxiety I'm seeing with people that every day, you know, they're waking up with this dread or, or it's just been part of their lives for a long time, or they're afraid to go out to the shops or, you know, it's, it's that kind of anxiety usually starts from unresolved emotion that we had in when we were younger, you know, childhood, teenagers, that kind of stuff. If, uh, if our parents weren't attentive enough to us, if we didn't get enough, you know, kind of love and attention or, or even food, you know, even, even food and shelter, you know, these things, these things change the autonomic nervous system, the system, the parasympathetic and the sympathetic, you know, the rest and digest and the sympathetic nervous system, they don't get calibrated properly in our youth if we don't get those needs met. And then as when we get into a crisis, as you were saying, that all of a sudden the threshold gets, gets, you know, raised of stress. And that's enough to drop a lot of people into sort of chronic daily worry. So I believe that anxiety has much more to do with kind of a stored energy of alarm in the body than it does with the mind. The mind is kind of this compulsive meaning making make sense machine that's always reading your internal and external environment. And it often misreads the cues that it sees. And because that autonomic nervous system isn't quite as, you know, calibrated or, or refined in those of us who've had trauma, we tend to think the worst. And then the thoughts are the, what the thoughts are the obvious things. So we try and treat the thoughts, but the little analogy that I always draw is it's like having a rowboat and there's a hole in the rowboat. So as the water comes in, you can bail water, which is kind of like doing talk therapy and CBT and that kind of thing. You can bail water and it will help but it won't fix the underlying problem, which is this hole in the boat, which is this sense of alarm that's stored in our bodies. And people say, you know, when I, I go out for with my friends and I tell them I'm feeling anxious and they don't understand. It's like, well, tell them, don't tell them you're feeling anxious. Tell them you're feeling alarmed because that's because everyone's felt alarmed and everyone knows what alarm feels like. And that's basically what it is. So I think mm-hmm. generalized anxiety disorder should be called generalized alarm disorder and social anxiety disorder should be called social alarm disorder. So I know I tend I tend to ramble here, and so I'm just going. But that, that, so basically, yeah, I think what we're doing in 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 most you know kind of uh, Western civilizations is we're trying to fix the thoughts with talk therapy. And I have nothing against talk therapy. I'm just I've I've kind of discovered a, a or elucidated upon uh, another way of healing too, which is kind of going into the body. Which you know, tr- as a trained medical doctor and a scientist, it does make me kind of. I, I do kind of want to have a seizure sometimes because it does make me feel like I'm kind of betraying my scientific roots. But I, I lived at a temple in India for a while. I've done psychedelics. You know, I've done all these things that have really just pointed me back to it's a spiritual issue. It's a body. It's an issue that's held in our spirit, in our body. And we have to fix it that way. Mm. I want to speak about so many different parts of what you just said. I'm like, I've got to speak about that bit. No, I've got to speak about this bit. There was so much. It's, um, it's oh, we'll, so, get, we'll get to it. It's so fascinating straight away. So I guess... um. I guess what, what, what I'm hearing first and foremost, because it's so interesting to listen to you and thank you for sharing what's because it's really, I mean, I'm just coming alive listening to you straight away. But what you're saying is we, we tend to try and treat the thoughts and you're saying there's something underneath that, that sits underneath that, that creates the thoughts, if you like, and we can just keep shipping, trying to shipping out the thoughts, but they're just going to keep coming through if we're not 
if we're not dealing with the underlying trauma, as we say, and even trauma, you know, like you say, perhaps anxiety isn't a great word. Perhaps trauma isn't a great word either, because a lot of people won't realize they'll be like, oh, I haven't had any trauma in my life. And they'll totally. just put it that way when actually, you know, trauma is perhaps over dramatized in, in their mind. And actually, it's we've all experienced something that will create negative thoughts, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and if we had, if we had a secure attachment when we're younger, you know, if you if you go through, say, a death of a grandparent and you're like eight or nine years old and your parent is connected to you, you know, you don't have a parent who's addicted or sick or, or, or um, you know, compulsively trying to distract their own mind from their own pain. And they have a chance to look at you and go, look, I know when Nana died, it was really hard. Like, talk to me about that. You know, give them like physical connection, like really connect with them. Then our brains, our little brains can process trauma. But if there's trauma in a house... Uh, the kids will automatically, A, blame themselves because there's this great saying that says, you know, if you abuse, abandon, or mistreat a child, they don't stop loving the parent, they stop loving themselves. And then what happens is that we create these negative views of ourselves and that, you know, all anxiety is separation anxiety, but it's mostly separation from yourself. So if you have a, an, an attuned parent to help you process it, chances are that trauma will be resolved. If you don't, then that trauma gets stored in your body and creates problems that, that can be lifelong. Mm. And we've all got that to some capacity, Absolutely. right? No one's lived yeah. this perfect life where they've resolved every challenge they've been through, particularly, and there's no blame with that. And it's not making anyone wrong. You're a child. Right. You don't know. No one's teaching you. The world doesn't teach us how to process any things. We're just doing what we do. And, you know, the society often tells us, particularly us men, it's we're best not to go there. Don't don't address the emotion at all. In fact, let's crack on and take ourselves away from it. Um, so this is, I mean, when we, when we talk about it in this way, it's like this is so... This is something that all of us need to look at and understand and just makes me realize immediately how important this conversation is because it's relevant to everyone, right? Yeah. And I think, you know, anxiety, we all have anxiety. I mean, anxiety is just a natural, there, there is a fear bias in the human brain that kept us alive years ago that, you know, if we saw a rustle, you know, saw a rustle in the bushes, if we assumed eh, that's probably fine, you know, you got eaten. But if you, you know, you assumed it was a predator and you escaped, you were fine. Now, if it was just a, a wind or, or, you know, a small animal or something like that, you, nothing really lost, you know, but we, it does, fear does get put into us over the course of time. And now we live in this age of the pandemic and we're, we're not getting our needs met. We're not getting that, that face-to-face -face interaction with people anymore that would cause our, our social engagement system, this part of our brain and our body that allows us to soothe ourselves and, and, and be connected to other people. So we're really getting, you know, really double whammied here with both the isolation and the fact that, you know, there's just, it's a really stressful time. Totally. Yeah. My goodness. It really is. Yeah. And where I'm, where I sit with that is sooner we can start having, and this is what partly of what I love about your work in many different areas, but you're, you, you sit in the space and you share your story. And I know anxiety was a big part of yeah. your life, right? From, from the youth, right? From, from your growing up and, and experiencing the, 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 well, your parents. The chaos of my father. Yeah. Yeah. The chaos of your father. And, you know, so right from the word go, you're experiencing this. And to, for us to, to, to make this a conversation, not that, you know, I, there are many people I would, I would say, if I said to them, I'm feeling anxious or I've got anxiety, they would just like, whoa, that's not yeah. the conversation we're meant to be For having, sure. you know, but actually if we can, like you're doing, and like hopefully we're doing this conversation immediately saying, hey, this is a natural part of the human experience and talk about it that way. Now we're starting to, to make some progress and it's not a negative thing. It's a human thing. Absolutely. And, you know, and we have to have it too. We have to have certain anxiety or else we wouldn't do anything. 
You know, if we didn't have anxiety, if we didn't have worry about something, we wouldn't do anything. It, it, it goes into our motivation too. But the problem with anxiety, especially when you have trauma, unresolved trauma in childhood, is that it can paralyze you as opposed to energize you. So, you know, I, I like showing people how to get back into their body so that they can get back into that using it as energy rather than going up into their heads and just, you know, burning out all that energy by ruminating all the, ruminating all the time. Mm. And, what, and what, what we're saying in this conversation now is if you don't get back into your body, if you don't get back and allow a release of those emotions, then you can, these thoughts, you can kind of do your best to go, I'm not going to listen to that horrible negative thought, yeah. but it's just going to keep coming and coming and coming. And sure. you're in this constant battle of dealing with that, which in, in effect, really, if what we're saying is meditation. In theory, you can start to differentiate yourself from your thoughts, right? But you're saying, well, negative thoughts are going to keep coming, keep coming until you deal with actually what's inside of your body. Right. Yeah, because it's it's the emotional alarm, that energy that's stored in your body that's fueling the negative thoughts. That's the thing. It's like so if you fix the hole in the boat, if you fix the the, the place of alarm, if you put the, the energy source of the thoughts, if you fix that specifically, the thoughts get weaker. You know, it's not like we'll ever we're, we'll ever be free of anxious thoughts. It's just that if your alarm, if your the the alarm is calmed in your body. You'll look at those thoughts with a lot more objectivity because basically when you go into an alarm state in your body, you go into a survival state in the brain. And when you when you go into the survival state in the brain, you lose the, you know, the prefrontal cortex, the area of your brain that that can kind of soothe you, that can kind of understand that things are actually okay. So when you lose that rational part of your brain, all you're dealing with now is a fright is the brain of a frightened child. And they're not going to—they're not going to come up with something that's—that's that's really going to help you that much. In fact, they're much more likely to create much more worry and much more pain, which of course you know energizes that alarm even more. And when the alarm gets energized, they get more negative thoughts. And when you get more negative thoughts, the alarm gets energized. So we get in this what I call this alarm anxiety cycle. So anxiety isn't just one thing. Anxiety isn't just thoughts of the mind. It's thoughts of the mind combined with an energy in the body that feeds it. So and they both feed each other. Right. So that's the thing. So the more we the more we have these negative thoughts, the more we charge up the alarm, which is going to create more negative thoughts. So it's learning how to break the two apart, feeling in your body, knowing that the feeling is actually okay, provided you don't start adding thoughts to it. And that's been the biggest sort of healing that I've had is is when I get alarmed, when I feel my alarm and and I've trained myself to really know what that alarm feels like. I know at that point that that's my tell that I have to kind of, you know, put my hands on my chest, find that alarm and just sit with it, breathe into it, you know, relax my shoulders, that kind of thing. And then focus on that energy rather than focus on the energy of the thoughts. Because what happens is instead of going up into my head and just starting whirring around like this, I go down into my body and start feeling. So when you do that, you take all that energy that was, was, feeding all those negative thoughts has now been redirected into something a lot more constructive. So, uh, you know, that's what I basically teach people is how to find the alarm in your body, how to find the wounds of your childhood, pretty much, and then how to how to soothe them, how to fix them, because that's the source of the problem. Fixing the thoughts will make you feel better, no doubt, but it, it tends to be short lived. If, if there's trauma stored in the body, they'll just keep coming back and back. And- Absolutely. And especially, especially if we get into a time of stress, like with the pandemic, like there's a lot of people out there that I've talked to in the last probably six months that says, I had no idea I had trauma in my childhood. I had no idea I had anxiety 
because they, they were functioning through society and they were kind of on that borderline, right? They were just on the edge. And then the pandemic came along and it just threw all this stuff into chaos. And then it was just enough to uncloak the anxiety that had probably always been there, but wasn't really that symptomatic. So they didn't notice it so much. They just noticed, you know, I have trouble getting up in the morning. I've, you know, I, I kind of ruminate on things. You know, I, I tend to, I'm a worrier. I tend to worry. And that has gone up to the next level, which is, you know, chronic, more chronic feelings of, of worry, more chronic alarm in the body, more chronic thoughts of doom and gloom. So it's just like the pandemic has just sort of, you know, pulled back the curtain on, on something that's been there, you know, for a lot of us for a long time. And, and I guess these triggers can, can show up in, in all sorts of different ways. Obviously, the pandemic brings all sorts of challenges for all sorts of people in different ways, and, and any of them could be a, a trigger of some kind. But it, it could be anything. I mean, if we're not dealing with the, the, the underlying trauma, it could be anything that shows up in the world that takes you back into that into that space of, of fear, right? And then the thoughts come into your mind and then it goes back into your body and now you're back into this loop again, right? So it's not, you know, if we live in, I guess it, if we can live in this beautiful space where suddenly we manage to find ourselves completely devoid of any fear at all times, sure. yeah, which I don't know is really possible in today's world unless we... Um, well, if you're know. not a, if you're not afraid of an oncoming bus, you're going to run into an oncoming bus. I mean, we need <laughs> we need a certain amount of fear. Kind of, it's like the people that are born without pain receptors. You know, those people die very young because they don't they don't have an they they can't tell that they have appendicitis. You know, they can't tell that there's something going wrong with their internal organs. Um, they constantly break things. So it's in a way, it's just kind of a a sensory system that's been magnified, that's been turned up. And, and it just makes us more, it just makes us more sensitive. And, and generally people with anxiety are sensitive to start with. They're sensitive to other people. They're sensitive to themselves. And, you know, and it can't, it doesn't have to be an external environment too. I've seen many, many people who were doing okay until the birth of their child. And then that fired them into anxiety or a car accident and that fired them in, or getting fired from their job that they had for 15 years. You know, just a, a big event in your life, you know, you can coast along for quite a while. And then a big event can come along internally, you know, it doesn't have to be the whole pandemic of the world. And that can just be fine enough to pull the, the, rug, the rug back and then you're, then you're in a full-blown anxiety. So my idea is just getting people before they get to that stage and just teaching them different methods. Um, me meditation is one, but I often don't use meditation in people because with anxiety because when they get quiet, they get afraid. You know, the thing about anxiety is there, it, there is a, a defensive accommodation is what we call in somatic experiencing therapy. We do develop these defensive things as children, and then we just use those, those strategies throughout our lives, and one of them would be worry. So we worry because it makes things more certain. So if you have a, you know, like a, if you've got a pain in your groin or whatever, and you think, oh my God, it's cancer, it's cancer, it's cancer. Now, part of your brain will get a little dopamine hit because now it has an answer rather than just leaving it uncertain because people with anxiety had usually had tremendous amounts of uncertainty when they were children. So any uncertainty now is to be avoided at all costs. So what people will do is to make something more certain is they'll worry about it. They'll you know make a worst case scenario or a what if. They'll make something to try to concretize that worry. But when they do it, now they've accepted that they have cancer or that they're going to die early or, or whatever. And then that creates more alarm. So they get you get into this situation where you're creating these, these 
horrible thoughts to try and make sense and make more certain. But when you make this thing more certain, you actually create more uh, trouble for yourself in the long run. Short run, worry kind of gives us that little sense of, okay, well, I know what's happening. Long run, it just says, well, that's what is ever happening. What is happening is terrible. So it's just, it is, and it just feeds on itself. You know, it really just feeds on itself. That's what, mm. that's the worst part of anxiety and alarm is it just feeds on itself. And until you learn how to break the cycle, it, it will always, it will always hold you. It was all, it will always grab you and hold you down. And mm. that's, that's a big part of it is learning how to break the cycle. Yeah, I hear you. And um, what, what I'm also hearing as, you, as you're talking about that is I think it's also important to, to acknowledge that, you know, anxiety is a, is a, in many is a healthy response of the body in in understanding or being aware in, of, of threats and keeping us alive right as you said if, you, if you're not aware of the big bus you're likely to get hit by the big bus um, yeah. so it is art but but it, and I, I really hear you and, and, and why i love having this conversation and bringing this alive because the more awareness that we can have so, so we can understand this better the more ability we've got to to rewire, and I know we're not dealing with the trauma at this point still, but the more ability we've got to rewire the perception that we have of the the, the things that we're feeling inside of us, so or, or or the thoughts that we have, so we can start to think, oh, whilst this is going on, you know, it's just my body's reaction. It doesn't have to be the truth. It's just it's just my body's like I'm being reminded. Perhaps we did get hit by a bus when we were young, yeah. and now we're overly afraid. You know, if we step anywhere near the road, with the alarm is is off because they can see a bus in the distance. And it's whilst that's going off, we can go. Oh, hey, like my body is reacting to the fact that once upon a time I had this trauma around this. It's not as real right now. I can I can have that conversation with my body. We can talk. I can managed to keep some kind of calm in that moment we're not obviously dealing with the trauma but with this awareness we can start to process things slightly different right yeah yeah i I want to make it clear that i'm not against cbt i think cbt is wonderful i think it works very well for a lot of people i'm not against talk therapy but what i am against is doing those things by themselves like without really focusing on the where the alarm is stored in the body without really focusing on the body's role in this it's really important to make sure that you do both. You know, you, you know, it's you have to do both to really heal. You have to f- fix the alarm side of the equation by dealing with the stuff in the body and somatic therapies, somatic experiencing. Hakomi are great at that, and then the mind. You know, we have to have a coherent narrative, as Dr. Dan Siegel talks about, of what happened to us in our lives. So we can't just ignore the past. We have to kind of have some kind of story that our mind can hold on to. But I think what we do is we focus so much on the story is we lose the feeling and you can't fix a feeling issue like anxiety with a thinking solution. It just doesn't work. Yes, I totally hear you. So that leads us into that kind of work then. You know, people are sitting there going, you know, almost an element of relief because they're like, I keep battling these negative thoughts. I keep hearing that they're bad and I've got to let go of them and yeah. I keep doing it, but nothing's really changing. They keep coming back and it's draining and it's tiring and I can't have complete control over it all. So now there's perhaps they're going to, well, well, perhaps there's stored trauma in my body that I need to address that would help these negative thoughts not keep coming flooding back in unnecessarily because I'm not in that same danger that perhaps I did experience once now and I would like to have a bit more peace in my life. Yeah. Um, so for those people, I guess, in, in this situation, obviously this is the work you do and obviously as a coach, I'm fully aware that this is much deeper work now You know, right. we, we're getting yeah. into, right? And it's not, it's not a click your fingers stuff and you can just rethink it as you're saying. But can we, can we start to tap into some, yeah, what, some, how some of that work looks like? Yeah. So, so 
here's kind of an example just before. So I was working with a guy, very successful realtor, very successful salesman, a lot of anxiety, a lot of alarm in his system. And I, I go into your background. It's like, okay, how did you grow up? And he said, well, my childhood was great. You know, we lived in this great house by the school. Uh, my parents are still together. Um, you know, things, yeah, I had a great childhood. And then as I talked, you know, part of how I work with people is I have quite an intuitive sense. And if you've ever seen me work on Clubhouse, you'll see that I, I kind of see visions for people, like where where their trauma is. And for this guy, it was like, I just got this incredible vision that his dad used to beat him, you know? So I said, did your dad used to hit, because I, I will just, when I channel stuff, it's like, did your dad used to hit you? It's like, oh yeah, from the time I was seven till 13, he beat the crap out of me every day or just about every day. And it's like, and I said, and you don't see that as trauma? And he goes, no, no, it made me the man that I am today. It made me really strong. So the number of people that I see that actually had significant trauma that learned how to push it away, the blind spots that I see for people, you know, the people that have a narcissistic parent or an addictive parent or a parent that just always put them off to the side, that they never actually processed as trauma because it was the only experience they had because it was their only childhood. They assumed everyone else, you know, had the same experience. And the amount of trauma that's out there and the amount of time I hear, I don't know if this is good or bad, but the amount of time I hear back from people that write me a note saying, I had no idea I was traumatized as a child until I read your book. And it's like, oh, maybe that's not so good. You know, maybe I'm putting, but it is one of those things. It's, it's amazing. Just literally dumbfounds me that people, how people can just deny the, the clear abuse that they went through as children, like just absolute clear abuse that they went through as children or abandonment or rejection or whatever. You know, I had another woman whose, whose mother, um, just, she could never do anything right. Like she, her mother told her she can, you can never do anything right. You're never good at anything, whatever. And, and she couldn't see it. She couldn't see, my mom was wonderful. She was very caring and she looked after me all the time, but she couldn't see that she, the mother relentlessly was going after her every day. Oh, you know, are you wearing that dress? Your hair looks terrible. You can't wear that jewel. You know, it's just over and over. And I said, and I said, that's trauma. <laughs> you know, that's trauma. You know, and I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, make everything trauma, but so much of it is. Like so much of it is. So, so as as far as healing it, usually what I do is I usually help people find that trauma that's still stuck in their body. You know, and, and, and usually there's a location to it. You know, usually it's like in their throat or their heart space or their solar plexus, kind of just in the, in the middle of their chest there or in their gut. Usually it's in the midline. Some people feel it in their shoulders. You know, pe- kids that have had, there's kind of general rules that kind of go with it, but kids that have had the experience where they were kind of the oldest in the family and they had to look after their siblings and they kind of had to look after parental roles too, they'll feel it in their shoulders. Um People that, that had a parent that was overbearing, where they couldn't tell the parent what was happening or they couldn't express their own needs, will get it in their throat. People who have been abandoned will get it in their heart. People that have been sort of, uh, you know, didn't get their needs met, love needs met, will get it in their solar plexus. And people that didn't get their physical needs met, like enough shelter or enough food, will often feel it in their belly. Now, this is, you know, general things of dealing with thousands of people. But it's, it's amazing how consistent that sense of alarm is. And I write about that in the book. So it's finding that sense of alarm in the body. That's what I do with the people that I work with. And then we just kind of tune into it. And then we kind of just give it compassion, give it love, give it a, a sense of connection. That Because I do feel that that alarm 
is the child in them asking for their attention. And if the, and if you can give that child that attention, the alarm calms down and then the ultimate, the, the anxiety calms down too, because the, the fire for it, the engine of it, we're working with, we're dealing with, we're calming it down. So we're actually going at the underlying source. And again, as a medical doctor, I want to just, you know, this is, this, it's so antithetical to how I was trained, but it just, I mean, for myself, I saw, you know, probably 50 different therapists in my life and none of them really, I mean, they helped a bit, but none of them really helped me fix it until I did, you know, LSD, psychedelics and found that the, 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 the real source of it was this alarm that I stored in my body and I had to bring it out, connect with it. And then really kind of flow from there and allow it to be there as opposed to just trying to push it away all the time. Now, again, that's another long rambling uh, answer. That's kind of how I work. Russell, it's beautiful. It's really just sitting and listening to that. Um, First of all, my brother's a doctor. I can't wait for him to listen to this. Um, I really can't because he's still very conventional in his practice. And he, yeah. You know, I've played him a few things, but so I'm working on it. I'm working on it. But secondly, um, uh, first time I ever worked, I worked with a hypnotherapist um, approaching 10 years ago now. And I remember the day sat on the sofa and her saying to me, so Ben, tell me about your childhood. And I was like, oh, really? Like, really? Like, honestly, I had a beautiful childhood. (laughs) Such a cliche. How do you feel about that? Yeah. (laughs) I was just honestly like, my childhood was so great. Uh, it's so great, and and yeah. it, and it was look, honestly, it, it, you know, it was. But yeah. I, I remember at this time, actually, just a penny dropping. I remember walking to the gym, and I'd have no idea why it was so hard for me to fathom this. So hard, but the penny just dropped when I, I realized that who I who I thought I was in in that moment was actually yeah. just a learned experience of who I basically the experience that I'd had. I'm, I'm the youngest child. So I'm the okay. youngest of three. I've got two older brothers who are seven and nine, year, nine years older than me. So okay. quite a considerable gap. And whatever I, I was achieving uh, as a child, you know, when I was four or five, my brothers were doing way more interesting things and it was way more developed. And, you know, what I'd done, they'd done years ago. So I remember always just sitting at the table, dinner table, thinking I was just low value. You know, I just, right. um, I just didn't really matter. Right. No one's fault, you know, there's no, no blame yeah. around it. But that was what I ingrained, you know, if we're using this word trauma, which, which fundamentally is what we're talking about, I ingrained this belief, this energy that I just didn't really matter, which is traumatic, right? That's not healthy yeah. energy to live with. Um, and that's, I took that all the way through. That was my, that was my journey. And, you know, I was until 30, I'm 39 now, but at the age of 30, finally, yeah. I started working as coach, but obviously it took some time to start to realize this hypnotherapist, start to realize that, you know, this is what, what my experience was. It wasn't until that point that I could do anything with it at all. It was just running my life. It was making me seek validation from everyone else because I didn't have it within myself. Yeah. You know, there was, there was emptiness in me. So I needed other people to fill me up and highly susceptible to everyone else's opinions as a result. Now, you know, everything you just said for me just fitted into that whole story that I talk about because until I became aware of that situation and the fact that whilst nothing majorly awful happened to me, I was just the youngest child in a family feeling a, a lack of, of, of self-worth. Um, until I realized that, I had no opportunity to change my experience yeah. and, and, and the energy that I felt. And I really, you know, you talk about different different body parts. I really felt it in my throat was a big, and I still do to this day when I have anxiety, I can still, it's like there's a block in my throat, you know, that, that kind of closes up. That, um, and um, everything that my experience was just fits in exactly with what you said. So it's, it's um, 
amazing for me to listen to really i'm just really excited to read your book and learn more yeah i think it'll i think it'll really help you because the message because i i read people right the message that i get for you is that i I don't think you felt heard you know I, i i think that you would and a child needs to be seen heard and loved and if you don't feel if you don't feel heard in a way i mean i don't like i hate to sort of say trauma 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 but if you don't feel heard, that's that is a huge issue for for children, and I see that with a lot of youngest, you know, middle children, youngest children, or whatever. The the, the older sibs have done all that. The parents aren't are nearly as connected. The other thing I see in some families is this thing I call well, I don't call it, but Mark Willen, who's a friend of mine, who wrote a book called "It Didn't Start with You" about inter, intergenerational trauma. He talks about this invitation to exist. So I see this in a lot of people, like if you had an invitation to exist from your parents, which maybe 50% of us get, um, a lot of us are accidents and, you know, whatever one parent wants us and the other parent didn't, you know, there's all these dynamics. So if you don't have this invitation to exist, the, the natural byproduct of that that I see with people is this sense of being not good enough, right? So um, I see that in people who are adopted. You know, it's like, well, why did you give me up? If I was worthy, if I was worthwhile, you would have kept me, you know, like speaking, even though they have no idea of the circumstances of their birth or any of that sort of thing. So that's just some, some an energetic kind of thing that I see with people. If you don't have this invitation to exist from your parents, um, then often what I'll see with that is the sense of not good enough. What I also see for you, though, is that that you were born to be a teacher, right? And I think, and a lot of us who are born to be teachers go through shit. You know, we go through challenges and we go through trauma and, and when we come out the other side, then we're able to teach it because I, I do think consciousness wants to experience itself, not to get too philosophical here, but consciousness wants to experience itself. So, so some of us are bakers, some of us are doctors, some of us are plumbers, some of us are, you know, uh, software designers, you know, we're all different in a lot of ways. And I think what happens is that, that we're all given kind of a different a different trauma to kind of overcome. And some kids are just given way more trauma than, than the average. And those kids usually wind up being teachers. They wind up being coaches. They wind up being teachers. They wind up being people that, that help other people. So that's kind of what I see for you is this wasn't an accident. This was just something that was put into you. Um, your brother's a teacher too. If he's a doctor, he's a teacher as well. So you probably have teachers in your family, I would think. Yeah, it's really interesting, actually. Cause, well, my mom always said, she looked at the three of us, the three boys, and she always said, like, um, uh, well, she basically got us nailed on. She, the, the middle one was was quite troublesome and not very intellectual, actually, but she always said, he'll make the most money. So, like, he, he yeah. just finds his way. Then you'll be a teacher. She always said, from as early as I can ever remember, she there always said I'm a teacher. Yeah, and, and she got my oldest brother. I don't think she said a doctor, but she said, I think he always wanted to be a vet. So I think she said he'd, he'd be a vet. He actually trained to be a vet, but um, developed an allergy, so he became a doctor. That's a different story. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Without the, the trauma, if, we, if we're going to, you know, we're using this word, without the trauma I experienced, I would not have anywhere like the desire that I have now to make a difference, to make an impact, to help other people who have experienced challenges. I also, it's so interesting when you say that about, you know, wanting to be seen, my Instagram account started with me posting naked pictures to, to represent like, here's me being seen, you know, right. fully like, you know, like this, I, I want to show up. I want to strip away my masks. Hey, look right. at me. And that's kind of how I built the, my, my story is like, I'm yeah. just going to, and, and shared like from the depths of my emotion and really kind of pour my heart out in this desperate bid to be seen. And, and, and that does still show up in some of my relationships. Now when I'm not heard, it really still yeah. to this day, I'm, I'm, I, it, it still irks me. You know? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's part of your dharma. It's part of your, you know, I can see it really clearly that that you're a teacher, you and you'll go to any lengths you have to, to kind of be seen and heard. And I think that uh, being able to see the underlying source of that, you know, will will really help you kind of come to terms with it in a way and just realize that it's in you. Like, it's just, it's part of you. And, and I think when we well, it's like when Brene Brown talks about stuff, like if we, if we can accept it and love and just, and just cherish, like I'm a procrastinator. So, so what I'll do, like my little saying is never put off till tomorrow, what you can put off till the day after that, you know? So it's like, it's like I, but I go to the mirror sometimes and, and you know, if I'm, I'm in the middle of a deadline and I, and I'm not making it, I'm starting to freak out. I'll, I'll go to the mirror and I'll look at myself and I go, you know what? You're a procrastinator. And I love that about you. I just love the fact that you put things off because what it does is it, it creates the sense of acceptance in us because what we said earlier, you can't change what you can't see. And if you don't accept something, in a way, you don't see it. You just push it away and you don't see it. Now, if you see that part that you consider like a negative attribute about yourself and you t- go to the mirror and you tell yourself about that and then you tell yourself how much you love yourself or you love that attribute, you know, because often these things that in children, in, in, in the sort of the... The, our younger selves or inner child or whatever term you want to put on there, they're often the best parts of us. You know, so we often, you know, my inner child's a procrastinator. I remember being, you know, it's like seven years old in grade two and them saying that there's an assignment due tomorrow. It's like, nope, not for me. You know, I'm not doing it. Uh, because what would happen is I would get attention, negative attention, but I would get negative attention for not being the only kid in the class who didn't get their didn't get their assignment done. So you realize how it actually feeds you in a way. And then you start, start seeing it in a different light. And that's true about Brene Brown. Like she says, whatever you shame or blame yourself about, you lock yourself in it. You can't see it and then you can't heal it. So it's really important for you to just sort of see that part of you and just fully accept it 
and fully welcome it in that, you know, it's when I get triggered, it's, you know, when I don't feel like I'm seen, it emotionally triggers me and then say, and I love that about me. I love that I, when I get, because, you know, it does guide you in your, in your life. It definitely, you know, and, and we're using this term um, trauma a lot. I would, you know, we can, we can downregulate that word to just unresolved emotion, you know, like, like it doesn't, we don't have to really traumatize everything but it's just unresolved emotion you know so you've got some unresolved emotion for feeling like you weren't seen and heard as a child you know so and that energy and that's just emotions just energy so it's just it's it gets put into us and it's just about a way of bringing it up to the surface you know like like Brene says you can't you can't heal what you can't see or what you refuse to see. So it's like bring it up to the surface, allow it. Carl Jung called it the shadow. You know, what, whatever you want to call it, you've got to bring that up to the surface. You've got to embrace it. And unless you embrace it, it, it can never change in you. Yeah, and this is so beautiful. So, so beautiful, Russell. And what, what I'm hearing is, um, you know, we talked about acceptance. And before that, we talked about compassion. And I feel acceptance is the, is the, is the lead into compassion. And we, if we're not accepting it, we're never going to have compassion for it. But if we start to accept it, then we can start to feed it with, with compassion. And with that compassion, we can start to dissolve it, right? We'll let it go, we'll break it down and stop it hindering us in quite the way that it will hold us holding us back or like limiting us with shame like it yeah. like it, it it could and I, I you know it really ties together this is really beautiful for me to, to to hear this and for all those people listening we've all got unresolved trauma and and, and all of us it's it, it, it's it's there and it will be impacting us in different ways some positive and, and some negative um but it's I, I, oh, I cannot wait to read your book now and piece piece more of this together to to understand more about myself because again this is understanding also fits in with compassion too if you can start to understand yourself because for me it's like I used to blame myself in terms of like or being shy or not being yeah. as, as as I should be like all this blame and then I was like well actually there's, there's there's no blame on you Ben you grew up believing you weren't you weren't a value because you're the youngest child you didn't do anything wrong you just experienced what you experienced so that's where that came from and with that understanding came an acceptance which then facilitated into compassion and, and releasing and also now this acknowledgement that it serves me it serves me it drives me in many ways so I, I really piece it together through this conversation it's beautiful thank you the, the story too that you, you 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 told you you tell yourself and you've said it a couple times so far is you have no value because you're the youngest child now if you think about that cognitively does that make sense that you have no value because you're the youngest child no of course no so, but it does, it does point you towards it because what happens is the emotional parts of our brain and the language parts of our brain are kind of separate. Well, they, they're not kind of, they are separate from each other. So what we'll do as children is we'll feel this negative emotion, this unresolved alarm or, or, or unresolved emotion on some level, and then our brain has to make sense of it. So what happened with you is that you said, I'm not being heard because I am the youngest child. And, and you said it once. And then because you said it, you automatically believe it. And that becomes the, that becomes the road that you go down consciously and unconsciously every time. And I'll tell you that probably has being the youngest child probably has very little to do with it. I think you were born with this. I think you were born with this because you're a teacher and this is what was put into you. This sense of, you know, unworthiness or whatever was put into you so that you would go through life and absorb experiences and be able to teach it to others that's how i see it in you that's how the intuitive the intuitive sees it in you but you as a child have made up this story that you 
you know, it was because you were the youngest child. I don't think that's the case. Wow. So interesting. Yeah. 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 I, do you know what? I, I, I don't think I totally hear you and I'm so interested. I, I don't think as a child I was aware of it, but I think I started that story when I started piecing it together. And I think it just, it was perhaps my way of understanding it. Yes. Of, of making it logical of going, oh, that's yeah. why actually. Yeah. Like it kind, of, it kind of does, it is a story that kind of makes sense, right? I'm not saying to it's true. Child. To a child. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but exactly. if you said, you know, if you said to a mom, it's like um, your third child. You probably don't listen to them because they're the youngest. You know, what do you think the mom would say? It's like you're crazy. Are you yeah, nuts? It's like I love my, I love them all. You know, as far as, but but it does sound like a, something a child would come up with. You know, like you're sitting there going, you know, no one listens to me. I'm the youngest. That must be it. You know that, that you can tell, and I can see these stories that we that our that our child inside of us makes and people tell them to me and then we say well can we just look at that story for a second does, does that sound like an adult's come up with that story does it really or does it sound like the child is made up because again the emotional parts of us and the language parts of us aren't that connected so basically we'll feel an emotion it'll come up with us and then the the brain makes up a reason after the fact based on the characteristics of that emotion. So if that emotion feels bad, the brain's going to make up a bad story. If the emotion feels good, the brain's going to make up a good story. The brain is really a lot more passive than, than people give it credit for. You know, It's really like whatever you feel in your body, your brain will give you the completely consistent, congruent story of how you feel in your body. So if you have this trapped alarm, you will start getting giving yourself these constant negative stories which of course, you know, develops into an anxiety disorder. So it's whatever we tell us. And that's why, you know, a lot of the times I'll end my YouTube videos with don't believe everything you think, because, you know, we create a lot of these thoughts as children. And then because we created them, we just automatically think they're true because, well, they've been around since I was four. So of course they're true. And what you said earlier, like acceptance is the first thing. So accept the child who made up, who made up that story I'm not being listened to because I'm the youngest, because unless you accept it, it's kind of like acceptance is kind of the first stage in seeing it, you know, or allowing it to be present. And then at that point, you can start to embrace it. You know, I, you know, you're a procrastinator and I love that about you. You know, you were the youngest child and you never got hurt. And I love that, that way that happened. You know, even though that's not true, you can start rewiring that in your body and brain so that it doesn't, it doesn't you know, it doesn't push you down that negative path every single time. What, what I'm really taking from that as well is that we're talking about a childhood experience here for me. And of course, it makes sense as a child, because it's the child who made up the story. I was a child oh at that point when I made up the story. I didn't have the, 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 the adult brain to say, hang on, it's not your low value, Ben, at all. It's just that, you know, they're older, and they're doing different things. And everyone is equally interested in you. It's just that your your perception is 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 as childlike in this moment and this is how you're seeing it but it's as an adult we'd have far more a different perspective perhaps you know we had to sit back and go oh no two plus two is is actually four it's not 560 it's you know we, we might have a different perspective but it has to come from a child because that's when it's, it started for me now of course i guess some people develop trauma later in life through experiences even yeah. as an adult which which is perhaps a different story but certainly for me this is a childhood story that i created um yeah Absolutely. And that's what he, that's how, that's how we heal is we take the adult that we are now, we go back and we talk and expose and feel the child who had, you know, you know, I would probably take you into a situation cause I can see you at a table, you know, like eating like oatmeal or something like that. And you've got this thought, no one listens to me. 
you know? So I would take you and I would take adult Ben. As you said, you're turning 39 or you... <clears throat> or you I'm or turning, you're, t- turning 40. <laughs> okay, so you're turning 40. So yeah. you take that 39-year-old, you come in behind him, you put your hands on his shoulders, you know, in your mind, and you say, you know what? I've got you here. You know, this this will all make sense to you. As you get older, you are loved. You know, you'll always be a part of me. I will always take care of you. I know I wasn't there for you at this time in your life, but I'm there now because the amygdala, the, one of the, the, the fear center in your brain or what's called that anyway, um, has no sense of time. So you can use the amygdala. The amygdala can be used for bad, which is basically encoding negative stuff when you were a child that you will keep for the rest of your life. Or you can use that nonsense of time to go back and show that child that they were loved, that they were heard, that they were understood because you hear him now. And then that kind of, it kind of heals. See, when you start using the hippocampus, I know we're going to get into a lot of the neuroscience of it, but it starts, you know, kind of time date stamping that memory so that the amygdala alone is not recording it in, in fear. So once we learn how to go back there and how to reassure that child and, you know, accept the child first, see them, then you can start to really have self-compassion for them and that kind of thing. Because a lot of times we blame our, our, our child for not being good enough. You know, if I was, if I was more, better, less, or different, none of this would happen. And again, that's a childhood thought as well. So you have to go back and, and show that child that whatever they are is great with you and that they are, that they hold some of the best traits, if not all the best traits of you. Hmm. Which is a big part of, of my work. You know, I used to, as you say, you know, berated myself for being shy. I didn't yeah. like that part of me at all. I, I, I didn't want to be that way. For me, that wasn't how a man was meant to be. Um, and all the rest of it, all these other stories that, that I made up, and I didn't, and I, I really didn't like it. And it really led me to put a number of masks on, on top to try and hide that part, to be something else. And now I'm really not congruent with my truth. I'm not aligned with who I really am, you know, and, and, and But is that true, Ben? Like, like I see, I see how cognitive you are just in our conversation. Like you, you kind of make up these statements as if they're true. They're not true, but in terms of having an understanding of what I was going through or what I, how I was piecing it together in, in, in that time. Now I don't, I don't believe, you know, like we're saying before, I don't believe them. They're still, they'll still come up, you know, when when I'm triggered, they'll still be, they'll still be part of me. Actually, I, I, um, I think it was really interesting. I listened to a previous podcast of yours, and um, you mentioned about, not to take this off topic, but I'm going to tie it into my story now, but you mentioned about antidepressants and actually how they can repress sexual energy or re- the feeling around sex. And my whole story was that uh, the reason I worked on myself is I experienced a lack of sexual fulfillment. I struggled to orgasm. That was what, what was showing up in my life um, all the way until I was 30, and that's why I started working with a hypnotherapist. And I thought she was going to turn me into some kind of sex guru and teach me all these sex tricks because that's all I wanted. The reality was she was teaching me to reconnect with my emotions and, and, and learn about myself, look at my childhood experiences and all this and kind of find compassion for what I'd been through. So anyway, that's just a bit of a side note. But um, that was how it showed up for me. And this lack of yeah connection and, and, and authenticity in myself was, um, was because I berated. I didn't like who I'd learned to be. Um, from the stories that I created as a child. Yeah. And when I read with you, Ben, is you've got a very powerful mind, right? Like I can feel it in you. You have a very powerful mind. So if you tell yourself, you know, I'm shy, I'm unworthy, you're really going to take that to heart. 
you know, whereas a lot of people who aren't as sensitive, they'll say, oh, you know, I wish I wasn't so shy. It doesn't have the same trigger that it does with you. Plus, with you, it feeds into your your overall dharma, your overall purpose, which is to be a teacher. So you had to go through that shyness to be able to be the teacher that you are now. Now, because your brain is and your mind is so powerful, whatever you say to yourself, you're going to believe. And so that works for good and it works for bad. So it's but often because we have this fear bias in our brain, we tend to go down the the, the negative route. So it's like accepting the fact that you were shy because that's just part of your dharma. That's just part of 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 your ultimate, you know, uh, evolution into consciousness and showing other people and the fact that your mind is so strong i see that with uh, with with teachers with people that that have gone through a certain amount of trauma because if you tell yourself a certain negative story and you have a powerful mind you're really going to believe that and it's really going to affect your physiology so i'm not surprised that you had like issues with sexual energy and that kind of thing because your physiology if you're blunting yourself because you know on some level not being heard was kind of like your mantra when you were younger, right? So if you don't feel like you're being heard, of course you're going to, what you're going to do is you're going to develop two parts of you. One that just withdraws into yourself and the other that develops this mask of like, I'm competent, you know, I look at me, I can speak, I, I can, I can affect people, which is, you know, part, both of those parts of you are, are real, but it's a matter of allowing those two things to kind of come together. I just get this vision of, you know, the shyness and the and the the fact that you're a speaker and you're a podcaster and all this kind of thing coming together to just really be the fullness of who you are. And I think that's your journey. And I think that's your journey in being a coach and, and helping other people too. Because, you know, it's a very common thing, especially among men, because we live in this environment where we're always competing with each other. And of course, you know, some, some men are, are they, they're, they're muscular, they're, they're dominant, they're that, and more, some men are more kind of sensitive and, and they're, they're more withdrawn and that kind of thing. And, you know, it's usually the sort of the sensitive ones that are the teachers, you know, uh, the, the dominant ones can be really sensitive too. I've seen that a lot. A lot of bodybuilders I see are very, very sensitive and they develop these huge frames these huge, to kind of hide this sense that they, you know, they, they don't feel like they have any agency in the world and they didn't as a child or they're beaten. You know, the number of bodybuilders that were kind of physically abused as kids, just huge. So we develop these defensive accommodations and then we develop the story around that and the story is usually quite childlike. But the the act the act of it with with you was just sort of I I I don't I want to be heard but I don't want to be heard so that's the message that I get when I kind of read you is like I want to be heard but I don't want I'm a, but I'm afraid to be heard so you know and then the part of you is like no we're gonna do this the teacher part of you the the real core part of you is like no we're doing this and the and the kid is still kind of in there going I don't know about this I don't know about this. So I can see how you can kind of get pulled in two different directions, but you certainly are moving towards that thing of, of being a teacher, being heard and being more comfortable with it as well. But it's just like, it's getting rid of some of that self-doubt. Cause like I said, you know, your brain, you, you specifically, your mind is very powerful, you know? So whatever you set your mind to, you're going to wind up doing, but you know, it, it's, it's that old saying, the mind can be a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. So it depends on what you're telling yourself. So you really have to be careful 
of what you tell yourself because it's really powerful. I feel like every time you speak, I just my natural reaction is going really beautiful. It's just like listening to what you share is really powerful. I, I think it's um, it's beautiful, and obviously it's centered around what what I've just shared with you. But I think for for everyone, if we can get that understanding and and learn about ourselves and the experiences that we've had and how they might have led us onto a onto a path of being. Uh, I don't know, led us to, to, to behave in ways that perhaps aren't true to our, our, our absolute core. Perhaps you'd say they are true to our absolute core because they're all part of our journey, you know? If we see that, if we allow ourselves to see them, accept, as you said earlier on, if you allow yourself to see them, accept them and embrace them, you know, then we can, then we can alchemize them. Then we can, you know, we can turn those negative feelings into positive feelings. And then we can learn a little bit more about what triggers us so that when we see it coming, we can kind of go, okay, I, I know what I, my natural tendency would be to do this, would be to withdraw, would be to leave the party, would be to do this. But can I, you know, connect with my body? Can I just sort of, you know, put my hand on my chest? Can I just breathe for a second? Can I put my feet flat on the floor? Can I just ground myself and see that there's another option? Because once you see there's another option and then you do it a few times, you kind of start putting a bit of a lobotomy through that old program. You know, you kind of, Go in there and you sort of swish around that old program so it doesn't, it's not your automatic behavior anymore. And then once you see, once the adult part of you and to some extent the child sees that, yeah, this is a much better way of doing it. You know, I've been doing this, I've been doing it this way for 40 years, you know, and maybe I should, maybe I should do something differently. You know, maybe I should, you know, if I'm having trouble at a party, you know, go into the bathroom and just teach myself to do a few breathing exercises for, you know, two or three minutes. And see if I can ground myself enough to get my physiology back to a place where I can be socially engaged again and then go back out and try that. And if I freak out again, I go back into the bathroom. I do a few more breathing exercises. I, I get connected with myself. And I get back into my social engagement where my, my, my body is not so alarmed so that my mind can actually be involved in connecting with other people. Because when you're alarmed, it's very, very difficult to make eye contact with other people. It's very difficult to make uh, smooth conversation because your, your brain and body has been taken over by this survival reflex. You know, so 60,000 years ago, if we were being chased by a warring tribe or, or, or a predator, we're not going to be, t I'm not going to be running with you through the forest going, hey, man, how's it going with the wife? How, how are you doing? Like, I heard you guys are having a little trouble. Is that, is that okay? You know, you're not going to be connecting because we don't, we don't need that. We don't need, we, our, our bodies and brains don't perceive we need that connectability when we're in survival mode. So it's bringing your body out of survival mode so that you can actually become socially engaged again. And then when you become socially engaged again, that soothes you even more. So it's really this, this state about knowing your physiology. And it's, you know, that's, you know, part of having a doctorate in medicine is I understand how the body works. And then, you know, the neuroscience part of it on top of that shows me the different neural pathways that go into connection. And it's really, we heal in community. We heal in connection with other people. And we, we have to connect with other people before we can truly connect with ourselves. And that's really, really true when it comes down to, to, to emo unresolved emotion in childhood or trauma or whatever you want to call it. To resolve that, we really have to, we really need another person's nervous system to help us regulate. And that's where a therapist comes in. And then once we learn how to regulate from another person and that gets put into us, we can practice it ourselves and learn how to really expand on that skill of what they call social engagement, which I talk about in the book as well. Because you can't be socially engaged when you're you know, in survival. It just doesn't work. It's, it's, it's too 
you know, we, we have stone age brains and digital, you know, we have a, a stone age brain in a digital world. So it is one of those things. There's certain programs that you just can't overrun, but you can hack them in a way in that if you get into your physiology and you calm your physiology and you understand the beliefs behind what you're saying are true, that all feeds together and you can start looking at things in a brand new way. Like with you, I, you know, I don't see this, this feeling of not being heard as something that was like purposely put on you. I think this is just part of your, this is part of your, like almost the philosophy of your life. Because if you didn't have this, you wouldn't be the teacher that you are now. And that's, that's kind of like the ultimate purpose um, of, or one of the purposes of your life is to be this teacher. And if you weren't that shy when you were a kid, you wouldn't be the teacher that you are now. I fully believe that. And I really hope that gives people real hope if they have experienced their own traumas or unresolved emotional challenges, like we said before, whatever, however you want to perceive it, to know that if you can uh, lean into these and learn to accept, then that really can become your gift. Like, like, like you're saying with me, you know, I wouldn't have the passion without that that whole experience. I wouldn't have the drive. I wouldn't show up like I do. There's so many different aspects. I wouldn't have done the work in the first place. You know, I would have just kept going. So, but it's being brave enough. And this is where I don't think society helps us because, you know, trauma is a, is a, is a, is a big word. No one wants to say I've got trauma or some people do. But, um, I, and again, I think now this is a separate conversation, but the difference between being vulnerable and accepting and there is being victim and saying, poor me, I've got this and not, not wanting to do it. Um, but if we're vulnerable enough to sit in the space and say, hey, like, you know, I had challenges in my, in my past that I didn't ask for, that I went through. It was my, my experience, just like many others have different experiences and it showed up for me. But if we can sit in that space and we can learn and we can be vulnerable enough and we can cry and we can experience the difficulty of going back there and, 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 and being present with what we experienced in the past that we desperately try and avoid because it hurts. If we can do all that, then there, there really could be some beautiful gifts that, that take you on this. I mean, we talk about purpose. Everyone's obsessed with purpose now. Um, that perhaps that could give you this new purpose in your life of showing up in this space that you're so passionate about because you want to help people who have experienced the pain that you've experienced and that's so still so raw for you and it gives you so much to be able to help people in that space perhaps so i just i love this conversation and i love the message i can't wait to read your book um and to learn more because i i really hope people can listen and go oh like Perhaps, you know, I've been trying this meditation stuff. I've been trying all this stuff. I've been trying to do this and practice my thoughts and do this and, and dancing and doing all this stuff, but it keeps coming back and I can't get there. And now perhaps they can see that perhaps there is some trauma there, but not in a bad way and, and make themselves a victim. Oh, poor me, I've got this trauma, but actually go, wow, do you know what? I've got trauma. And actually, if I can learn and come to terms with it, what could, how can it serve me? What journey could I go on from once I'm willing to sit in that space? Where can I go from here? And I think that's beautiful and incredibly powerful. Yeah, and, and that's really that's really what healing from any emotional issue is really all about. So the way I, I kind of explain it fairly quickly is that there's a child in you that's sort of holding up their hands to be held. And what they're doing is they're emitting this alarm because they're scared. And then there's the adult in you that's looking down at that child but sees the alarm that the, that the child is created. And then the, the adult goes, well, I'm not going to go into that alarm. That was just way too painful. So what we do is we see the alarm, but we go right up into our heads and then we try and explain it. So then we just get caught in this loop of, I'm not going to feel this alarm. I'm just going to try and think my way out of it. And then that becomes the loop. And the child is still there with their hands up 
asking for your attention. So if you learn how to just go into that alarm, stop and then go, going through the alarm and then finding the child on the other side, that's when you start healing. But the reason why we don't heal is because we, as adults, we see that old alarm and we think, I'm not going there. But you don't see on the other side of that alarm is that child that's asking for your attention. And that's where true healing is. That's so beautiful. Yeah, totally. And how many people go back and have that conversation with their, with their inner child, with their younger self? Very few. Yeah. yeah. I know it's probably more common now, and but still, you know, the majority of us carry that energy with us forever and wonder why we act out of sync of who we really would love to be. Yeah. And hand that down to our kids. And hand it down to our kids. Yeah. Yeah. So what you don't fix in yourself gets handed down to your kids. Mm. So if you don't, if you can't do it for you, do it for your kids. It's so beautiful, Russell. I'm going to be shouting about your work from the rooftops because I just, um, I knew this would be, uh, I was so excited to speak to you, but really it's been like an absolute honor and a pleasure. And, and this just, I love your message. I love the way you show up. I love the, the, the intellect behind it all and how you're able to make it still relatable. Um, I think I can't, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm in awe and I'm just so grateful for, for you sharing everything you have done with me and um, I'll be shouting about you and your book from the rooftops. Can, can we um, can we learn a lot of this in your book or is there is, is, is like are there other resources come to you direct or how do we, what's yeah, best? You can come to me direct. Like uh, the, the best way to find me is just Google the anxiety MD and like my YouTube and my Facebook and, and my Instagram, all that kind of shows up there. So um, the book is really a, a really nice way of kind of getting introduced to my work. And if you've had childhood trauma, like I get notes every day from people going, I've stopped highlighting the book now because I'm highlighting most of the book. Like most, <laughs> I can most, imagine. It's, it's very, it's, you know, and it's fairly dense reading. So I get people like when you get the book, like take four or six random places in the book and just read a couple of paragraphs because that will really give you the feel for it. Because it really is different. It's kind of like The Body Keeps the Score, Bessel van der Kolk's book, Body Keeps the Score. But it's kind of, um, it has a, a much more personal bent in it. I tell my own story. I tell stories of, of my patients that have healed from anxiety. It's really like a personal journey um, using neuroscience, but also using my intuitive ability to kind of really show you where your anxiety, which is really your alarm, lives, how to bring it up to the surface and how to metabolize it. You know, and I'll be doing a lot more in the next year or so on like Zoom meetings. And every Sunday I do a, a, a room on Clubhouse uh, for anxiety where I kind of give intuitive readings and, and, uh, and just show people that what we believe anxiety is, the traditional model of anxiety is not accurate. And that's why people go through 20 years of therapy and are still anxious because the model isn't working. It helps, you know, it, it bails water, but it doesn't fix the hole in the boat. Yes, I've got you. I totally get it. I totally get it. Yeah. Oh, Russell, you're a star. I, I, um, I really look forward to, 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 um, to following and learning more about you and, and watching your journey. And I'm just really incredibly grateful that you shared it with me. And I think it's, as I say, what you're doing is, is amazing. And yeah, I'll be shouting about it all from the rooftops. I think you're incredible. So thank Thanks, you. And you're, and you're a teacher too, right? Like that's it. That, like the, this isn't a chance meeting here for sure. You're a teacher as well. I see that clearly in you. So, 
you know, just, and your mind is really powerful. So the thing is, be careful what you think, because, you know, just question what you think, because your mind is so powerful that it will sort of take you down the rabbit hole before you even know it. I think I'm, I'm increasingly aware of the power of my mind, you know, I wasn't aware of at all for 30 years and yeah. every day I'm becoming more aware. So yeah, thank you for reaffirming that as well. You're very welcome. Russell, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh, you're a star and um, I'm incredibly grateful for you. Thank you. Same for me. Thanks, man. Oh, that, that, I hope you could feel, but that was one of the most powerful conversations I've ever, I've ever had in terms of learning and education and just piecing things together. It, this whole idea of looking at where your anxiety comes from and understanding the stories that we've created, understanding our past experiences and how much they shape us. For me to be able to sit and, and share a little bit about my own experiences and understand myself a bit better, it was just really powerful, really amazing. So I'm so grateful uh, to Dr. Russell Kennedy. So grateful to be able to share that conversation. So grateful to be able to share it at this time with it being Mental Health Month. Um, so yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. Please, any help you could offer is great in terms of reviews, subscriptions, um, following us on Apple. Uh, if you feel inclined to share it on your socials, please tag me in. That's always beautiful to know that people are listening and, and, and receiving this message. So yeah. I'm just really grateful to bring this conversation alive. I'm really grateful for you if, if you wanted to help share it. So thank you. Thank you for listening. And next week, we'll be back with another expert around mental health. So I hope to join you then. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.